What? Save them. Saved who? People. He saved people. He saved people. Dionic was for sins. Dionic was for sins. Told people to repent. He died on the cross for our sins. He did. Can you think of anything else? Uh, he was born in Bethlehem. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus, let me go and we'll go to everybody's world. And died on the cross to take our sins. Came to earth, did a bunch of miracles. Taught a bunch of sermons and got crucified, rose again, and said that he'd come back and that he had saved us from our sins. Anything else come to mind? Uh, he took away our sins. He's in our heart. Yeah. That's all I need to think of. Okay. Died on the cross and rose again. Get orange. He rose from the dead so we can go to heaven. Well, there's your sermon today. Um, we'll just pray and get out of here early. So, no, nah, we, we got more to talk about. So, um, that's what we're talking about today. What did Jesus do? And as you, you just heard a bunch of the children from our children's ministry, they were able to answer that question. And it's a common answer that pretty much everybody would say, what did Jesus do? Well, the Sunday school answer, he died for me. But is that all that Jesus did? Do we really just narrow it down to Jesus died for me? Because here's, here's the thing. Everybody dies. Death has claimed 99.999 like infinity percent because you have like Enoch who just went up to heaven. And then you have Jesus who did die, but he rose again. And otherwise, like everybody else has faced death. So what is it that made Jesus's death different than ours? Why is it that Jesus died and was able to take away the sins of the world when I'm supposed to die? So why would my death not take away the sins of the world? Because we're going through this series where we're going back to the basics, where instead of like moving forward and, you know, trying to find all these deeper meanings to everything, what we're doing is we're going back to who is Jesus what did Jesus do? Why did Jesus have to do it? And, and the goal behind all of this is that we fall in love with Jesus. I mean, you kind of look at whenever John is writing the book of Revelation and he is talking to, I think it's the church in Ephesus, and he says that you guys are doing well, but there is one thing I have against you. You have forgotten your first love. 
And it's so easy to get distracted with so many things. And even Paul writes to the church, I think it's in Thessalonica, where he says, do not get bogged down with genealogies, with all of these enlightenments. You know, there's a progressive movement that is going on that is wanting to make it more than Jesus. And it's like, hey, we're going to start the year out by going back to it is Jesus. It is always Jesus. It is currently Jesus, and it will forevermore be Jesus. And so what we want to do is we want to look at who Jesus is, which we did that last week. Remember, he turns to the disciples, and he, he first asked them, who do the people say that I am? And they said, you know what? Some people are saying you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some are saying that you're one of the prophets, maybe Jeremiah. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so this week, we're going to look at what is it that Jesus did, not just because it's not just a death, even though that is a vast part of it. But we're also going to see that it was the life that Jesus lived. It wasn't just a death, but it was a sacrifice that Jesus made. He didn't just die. He was sacrificed, and he willingly gave his life for that. And then because of that, there is a fulfillment that we get something out of it. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn there, the words will be on the screen as well. But we're going to be in the first four verses, even though we're going to cover a lot of it. Our key passage is the first four verses of Romans chapter 8. I'm going to ask if you'll please, in honor of the reading of God's word, stand, and then we'll pray, and then you may be seated. So Paul writes, and he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Father God, we thank you that we can gather together again. And God, I thank you that as our, the children of this church have learned of who you are and what it is that you did for us. But God, may we not just trivialize it down to something like that, but God, may we truly see what that means for us. And so God, I pray that as we just kind of look at this text today and look at what your word has to say to us, speak to us and just, God, stir in our hearts that love that we have for you and therefore the life that we live for you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Thank you. So we see it kind of here in this section, Romans chapter 8 is a continuation of what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7. Where really something that I resonate with a lot is Romans chapter 7 verse 15 and following where Paul is saying, there's these things that I'm doing and I don't know why I do them. And then there's these things that I want to do and I don't understand why I can't do them. Instead, I keep doing the thing I don't want to do. And he's really left with this turmoil. And if you've ever lived, then you understand what he's talking about. 
It's like, I really don't want to get angry with my kids, but they push that button, and then I just realize that I'm exploding on them, and I want to have more patience with them, but I don't have more patience with them. I want to spend more time with my family, but I fill my calendar, and I don't spend more time with my family. I want to be in God's word more, but I hit snooze a few too many times. I want to attend church, but my bed is too comfortable. Whatever it is, it's like there's things that I want to do, but I don't do them. And then on top of that, there's things that I don't want to do, but man, I just keep on giving into them. And I, the more and more I say, I'm not going to do that, it seems like the more and more I find myself giving into it. And so you're kind of left with this, kind of this interner, interner, in, in, hard words, internal turmoil that is just having you, by the end of the day, just feeling worthless. And you're like, oh my goodness, I am exhausted from this fight. And then on top of that, you're kind of condemning yourself. And not only are you condemning yourself, you feel like God's condemning you. Because God, I promised you I would never do that again. I promised you, I said this was the last time and then I find myself doing it again. And so you're left with this, just this feeling of condemnation and Paul transitions right away into that with verse one of Romans chapter eight. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says there is absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because right before this in verse 24, he said of, of chapter seven, he said, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ, our savior. And so he's saying that Jesus saved us. And so therefore, because of that, we don't have condemnation. That when I'm doing the things I don't want to do and I can't do the things I want to do and I'm feeling this guilt and this condemnation upon myself, Paul's like, that's not from God. There is no condemnation. Not that God's like, <laughs> you're pretty dumb. There's a little condemnation in there because that's what I want to put on myself. It says, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then when you jump to verse 32 of Romans chapter 8, we see Paul continues to say this. He says in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Then verse 34, he says, who will condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so Paul is saying there is no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, God didn't even spare his own son, but he gave him up for you. So who is there to condemn? The answer is God. He is the only one that can condemn you. Like, I can't condemn you. I can't condemn myself. Only the judge can condemn me. And he says, God's not condemning you. God gave his son for you. Christ is the one who died for you. More than that, Christ is interceding for you. So when you're the one that is throwing the condemnation on you, Christ is standing there going in between you and God saying, hey, he's one of ours. He belongs to us. There is no condemnation. But here's the key word. If 
you are in Christ Jesus. If you are not in Christ Jesus, you've condemned yourself. And there is an eternal punishment to be paid. But if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no punishment. You have been set free. Because that's what Paul goes on to tell us in verse 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He says, If you are in Christ, you are free. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. That you have no condemnation. The thing is, is that as human beings, at least for me, I walk around and I carry it. The things of the past, the things that I've done earlier, the, the thoughts that go through my head, the, the dark places that I go, and I'm left with what Paul says. What a wretched man that I am. If people truly knew what was going on in my brain, then it'd be so freaky. Like, I, I truly pray that the scenario where God projects all our thoughts on the projector screen of heaven never comes true. And I'm guaranteeing it's not. Because he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been set free. And he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How though? How have we been set free? Because there is this requirement that is made for life. And that requirement is perfection. To live a perfect life. And so Paul continues on with this in verse 3 through 4. Where he says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, Jesus not only came to die for our sins, Jesus came to live the perfect life. He came to live the perfect life that we could never live. Because there is a standard that God has set. And it is perfection. Jesus, in probably his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says this statement. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the standard of the life that we are called to live. If you want to make it to heaven based on your own merit, your own efforts, that's what you have to do. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then he goes on from that moment forward telling us pretty much it's hopeless, that we can't. Because he goes on and he really breaks down every way because you have like the rich young ruler who is like, oh, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know what the law says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And he's like, sweet, I have done all of that. And then he's like, Go sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me. And the man walks away, and he's sorrowful because he had great wealth. Because the thing is, is like we kind of like to look at the Ten Commandments, and it's like you, as a culture in general, and it's like, you know what? I haven't done any of those. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't really stolen, like Grand Theft Auto stolen, 
You know, like I borrowed a couple things that I never returned. Not a big deal. Uh, I, I've, okay, I've lied, but that's fine. Everybody lies. Um, and, and so we start playing this comparison game of maybe it's a test and I can pass with a 70. Seven out of 10, that's not bad. I can do that. But then Jesus goes on and he says, okay, you say you haven't murdered anybody, but I saw what happened when that car cut you off in traffic and you were about ready to drive him off the road. That's anger. And God says that if you are angry with your brother, you are guilty of murder. And I know what you were thinking when you were, you know, scrolling through the, the social media the other day and you caught that image and it popped that thought in your head. And even though you didn't sleep with that person, you have lust in your heart, and that's called adultery. And so therefore, you're committing a major sin. And remember that time that you said that you were going to give me everything, and then you put other stuff before me? That's called idolatry. That's one of the big ones. When you didn't honor your parents, when you didn't, I mean, suddenly, when we look at it through the lens of God and the filter that he's doing, we don't even pass with a 50%. Like, even if there's a curve, we're failing severely. So what Jesus is telling us is that we have to live a perfect life. If you want to get to heaven, live a perfect life. And it's like, I can't. Even from this moment on, if I try, I will fail. So will every single person. I don't care if they have the word saint in front of their name. They're not doing it. And so we need somebody to live a perfect life for us. Enter Jesus. He lived the life because Paul tells us that in verse 3. He said, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Because according to the law, we were never going to be able to be right with God based on our own standards. So God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to live the perfect life that we could never live. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, he has been tempted just like you. Jesus knows what you're going through, but catch this, it says he was without sin. He perfectly lived that life because the requirement of the law is perfection. And we're never able to be perfect. And so Jesus came to fulfill what the law was weakening us by. Because Paul goes on to say in verse 7 of Romans chapter 7, he says, what shall we say? Is the law sin? Because the law is pretty much condemning everybody. Paul says, by no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin is. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. If you want to live, keep the law, but I can't. I'm walking on the grass. I'm touching the wet paint. I'm defying what my authorities say. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the law is to show us that we cannot be right with God. Never on our own ability. You are to be 
perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anybody who thinks, yeah, but look at the law. Read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Uh, You can get through it in like 15, 20 minutes, and you will see just how far we have fallen. So that when God says through Paul in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, no one is righteous, no, not one, it suddenly becomes crystal clear. But God sent his son in sinful flesh and for sin to live the life that we could never live so that we could have the eternity that we never deserved. So Jesus lived perfectly because, you see, he all, it, it came. The Sunday school answer, well, Jesus died for my sins. That is the right answer. I'm not saying that's not the right answer. But Jesus had to live the perfect life in order for that sacrifice to be received. You see, I could have given my life for you all, and it would have been nilch, because I'm not perfect. Not even close. As much as Heather thinks I am, it's not true. I know. She doesn't think I am. She's like, oh, let's start a list, Andy. But I, nobody, you can't give your life for anybody else. Only a perfect life can be sacrificed. Only a perfect life can be given for sin. And that's what Jesus did. Because again, verse 3, Paul said, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He sent his son to live that life and he condemned sin in the flesh. You see, this is the answer we all know. Jesus died for us, but he offered the perfect sacrifice. Because why is it that Jesus died? What crime did Jesus commit that was deserving of that? What sin did Jesus commit that was deserving of that death? Jesus said, nobody takes my life, but I give it freely. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus is the only one that is not deserving of death. Everybody else, totally deserving. No matter how much we might think undeserving. But Jesus gave his life for us. He came, he became the sacrifice to set us free. We're told this in Ephesians or in Colossians chapter two, where Paul tells us, you, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he did, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, the sacrifice that Jesus made. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, not inwardly, just outwardly, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish because he lived that perfect life, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
You see, if Jesus did not live a perfect life, his sacrifice would not have been received. But he lived the perfect life that we could never live, and he gave his life to die the death that every single one of us deserves to die as a sacrifice in our place. You see, the, the animal sacrifices, they, they were made in tents prepared by hands. You read through like Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and you see that they're walking around and they're offering these sacrifices and it's in tents made by human hands. But we're told that Jesus went into the Holy of Holies, into a tent not made by hands, but by God. He went directly to the presence of God because of the sacrifice that he offered. Hebrews 10 tells us this stuff. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So this is like the continual cycle that we're in of like, I'll do better next time. This was the last time, God, next time I'll do better. I'll give more, I'll attend more, I'll be better. And it's like, no, no matter what sacrifice we make over and over, it's never enough. Even if we shed the blood of bulls and goats, it's not enough. And so the writer of Hebrews continues on. He says, otherwise, if, if that was possible, they would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. So we're left with what wretched people that we are. Who will deliver us from these bodies of death? Who, because I cannot be right with God through keeping the law, what, what's the hope? Where does my hope come from? My favorite words, but God. While we were still dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him through Christ. That through the sacrifice of Jesus, we have hope because it's not based on my earning it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a gift, it'd be a wage. It's not based on me striving to maintain some of it. It is 100% the work of Jesus. And therefore, because of that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God has set us free from the law of sin and death. Jesus he entered the most holy place and he tore down that veil. And it says that it tore from top to bottom, the work that only God could do. And he ripped it. I mean, this thing is like a foot wide and it just split like a sheet of paper. God separating the barrier. We're told in Ephesians that he broke down the barrier wall of hostility. This he did through his flesh by nailing it to the cross. You know, Hebrews 10, 12, it tells us Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
Verse 19, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is the confession of our hope? It's not what I've done. It's solely what Jesus has done. That God sent his own son that he did not spare him. And so therefore, how will he not much more along with him give us all things? So the question that we're left with is, who is there to condemn? Only God. But he sent his son to be the sacrifice that we were supposed to pay, but we could never pay. And that's the last thing. That through all of this, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us. He lived the life, he died the death, and he fulfilled the requirement. Verse 3 through 4 again. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, what, what is it that this means? Again, we've already looked. There is a standard to be able to enter into the presence of God, and it's perfection. If you have a blemish, you're not making it. One slightest, James tells us, anybody who has broken one of the commandments is guilty of breaking all of them. So really when it comes to maybe I can skate by on like a 50%, if you broke one, it's an automatic fail. It's a pass fail and nobody is passing. So there is this standard and we're given that standard. It's called the law. That's how you obtain the standard. It's broke down into various uh, categories. You have the ceremonial law. So this is like the washing and the cleansing. So like if you touch something dead, then you have to leave the, 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 uh, the campground and be away from everybody for like seven days. And then after you go through the ceremonial cleansing, you can come back. There's the civil law, which is like how you treat one another. And then there's the moral law, which is like the Ten Commandments. That is God's standard. That's how we see the heart of God and what he expects of us. And again, it's pass-fail. It's 100% or it's a complete, utter failure and being sent to hell. But God... He sent Jesus to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we were deserving to die so that the righteous requirement of the law is now fulfilled in us. I mean, that's the thing. It, I think it was Hebrews that we read. It said he has once and for all, 1014, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the righteous requirement of the law is completed. Through Jesus living and dying, and now we can stand before God perfectly. No matter what comes our way, he sees us as perfect because of what Jesus did for us. He fulfilled the requirement of the law so that we can come to God through the new covenant. This was talked about in the Old Testament. Jeremiah said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. We just remembered that covenant. 
through taking communion. The body that was broken for us, the blood of the new covenant being ushered in, that now the way we are right with God is through the blood of Jesus. That this new covenant is coming in with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the law. My, command, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, we live in this covenant, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall no longer one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see, no longer is it looking at life as a list of things that we do and don't do. That's the law. Don't do this. Don't do that. And it gets exhausting. But instead, for freedom, Christ has set us free so that now we live for the Father. That we just get to live in his presence. We get to love what we do and glorify him and live for him in everything. And please him. So that means that what drives my life is not a, oh my goodness, am I going to be condemned in this? It's a, I love God. He sent his son to die for me, to pay the price for me. So I'm going to live for him. It becomes, as Jesus tells us, it's, it's that marriage. Where in a marriage, I'm not sitting there like, huh, uh, she gives me a list of things that I do and don't do. Like, hey, how about you don't cheat on me? How about you don't talk to your exes? It's like, I love Heather. That's not even on the table. I want to live for her. I want to love her. Everything I do is to glorify her. Obviously glorify God first and foremost. But that's how it comes with God. I'm not sitting there like, well, can I or can't I go back to sleeping around with multiple partners? Can or can't I get drunk? Can I or can't I? What I want to do is, God, I just want to glorify you in everything. The driving factor in my life is Jesus because of what he has done, because he canceled the debt for me. It was said by Matt Smethurst. He said, the gospel changes heaven's courtroom from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. Where it is like, man, I was on trial and I was going to be found guilty. But suddenly Jesus enters in and he says, we're going to change this. He's now going to enter into the family of God. He's now one of ours and there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of what Jesus did, we are all, we can all become sons of God. Paul tells us this, when the fullness of time had come, God sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our heart so that we can cry, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, Jesus died for us, but man, he did so much more than that. 
He lived the life that we could never live. He died what we deserve to die, and he fulfilled the law so that we can receive what we were never able to receive, eternal life. You see, he took our dead souls and he made us alive. We read this um, in Colossians, but Ephesians tells us this also. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then Colossians tells us that he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That we can just confidently, as Hebrews tells us, go before the throne room of God, and this is even in that darkest moment. I've said it before, and it's not my saying, but uh, I, I love the way it says it, where religion, where it's based on a list of commands and do's and don'ts, is whenever you get in trouble, and it's like, oh no, dad's gonna kill me. Whereas when you have that relationship with God, where there is no more condemnation, where it is a true healthy relationship and you do that terrible thing, you pull the e-brake going 60 miles an hour and put the car in the ditch and it's like, oh no, I have to call dad because he's the one that can help me. You do that with God. That is like, God, the thing that I don't do, I don't know why I'm doing, or the thing that I don't want to do, I don't know why I keep on doing it. And the thing that I wanna do, I can't do. Who's gonna help me? I'm going to God. I'm going to run to my Father because He is the one who helps me. So, what do we do with this? We do exactly that. We run to the Father. We see Him looking at us with arms stretched open. And as we're told in the parable of the uh, prodigal son, He runs to us and He embraces us. And he doesn't say, you fool, you idiot. I, I, I told you it was gonna be like this. Instead, he says, grab my best robe, grab my ring, grab the fattened calf and slaughter it. We're gonna have a party tonight because this child of mine who was lost has come home. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been set free. And it is only through the blood of Jesus. So if you are here this morning and you're thinking, nah, I can do it, you can't. You never will surrender over to Jesus. And in that moment, you find salvation. You are set free. So then from there, what we all get to do, this is called for if you have been a believer for all your life, you think, or you just gave your life to Jesus. Paul tells us, every single one of us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
You are not trans, uh, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what, what's the response to hearing what Jesus has done for us? You go from here and you live for him in everything that you do. Don't conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. What that means is everything you do, you die to it so that you can be glorifying Christ with your bodies. Father God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for doing what the law could never do by sending Jesus to live the life, to die the death, and therefore, God, we can be right with you. So God, I just, oh, I praise you for that. But I pray that if there be anybody who has not done that, God, there is pride in our lives where we wanna say, yeah, but I can do it. God, break us of that. Humble us all so that we just live for you in everything. And God, through that, may we just fall madly in love with you. God, as we get ready to sing this song, may the words of it be our prayer to you, that you change our heart. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.